on a second before I rejoice. Um, we did um, have, I'm not going to say it to embarrass him, but Asa asked us this morning if he could pray the prayer to receive Jesus as his Savior. And uh, he is going to be pursuing baptism. Um, we also have another young man who wants to be baptized. So that's something we're going to be doing soon. I'm going today to Oak Hill. Not that that matters, but to pick up a, a, a watering trough to get these folks wet. Um, so that will either be, that will be in the next couple of weeks that that happens. It will probably, and we don't have all this set, we're working on uh, specifics. It'll be here, uh, either outside or inside, depending on the weather and all that kind of stuff. And if there is anyone else who is interested in being baptized, now's a good time to let us know. Um, we can talk to you, work it out, and hopefully um, fill that trough and empty it and have a few people in there in between there. So excited, excited about the prospects of what God is doing, and um, He's faithful. Amen. He's faithful. We, we put the word out there, we love each other, and we trust Him. So uh, praise God for what He's doing. Now today... I want to talk about something that I think is very um, um, practical, very real for everybody here, whether you're a believer, not a believer. Um, specifically, if you're a believer, and, and, and the, the table I want to set this morning is this, have you ever just worked real hard at something and just couldn't do it or couldn't get it done or... You just get discouraged and you try over and over and over and over and over and over and it seems like you're just not not ever going to get it done. I recently started taking um, guitar lessons from Hannah's fellow Seth to learn how to play lead guitar. I've played rhythm guitar since I was 15. But as far as picking up a guitar and playing a solo or something like that, I just can't do it. Well, my, my most recent solo that I'm learning is Let It Be by the Beatles. And I'm sure my family is sick of that song especially that solo that I just can't seem to get right. I just, I mean, I've tried and I've tried and I felt pretty good about it. And I had my last lesson Friday, this past Friday evening, and I was kind of excited to sit down and play it for my teacher. And I just flubbed it. I mean, I just couldn't do it. I sat down, I felt like I had it ready. And I was just it was like, my fingers were on a different planet and my brain wasn't connected to my fingers. And I was frustrated. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Let it be has become a refrain, but I can't let it be. I got to keep trying. I got to keep working and I'm getting better and, um, but, but I'm not there yet. And, and I'm sure once I get it, I'm still not going to have it and I'm still going to mess it up. And if I sat down to play it with somebody full of pride and joy, I'm going to goof it and I'm going to be like, I messed up again. Am I ever going to get this right? Now, let me ask you this. You ever felt like that in your Christian life? Am I ever going to get this right? Maybe you have a good period where everything seems like it's going pretty good. And then you just dive headlong into sin. And you're like, I can't believe I did that. What's wrong with me? Am I even saved? Why would God put up with me? Why would God even look at me and say, I love you, son. Because I don't deserve that because I mess up over and over and over and over every single day. And I don't feel like I'm ever going to get it right. Well, you know what? You probably ain't. And that's something we're going to look at today. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. Uh, and what a what a passage! I, I really the hardest thing I do in preparing messages is cutting out what needs to be cut out to fit into this strict narrow one hour time frame y'all have given me to talk. <laughs> Shame on y'all! <laughs> Somebody sitting here going an hour? What are you for real? Yeah, we're for real. <laughs> Let it be. <laughs> da, da, da. Okay. <clears throat> so if you would please stand. As we read together the very words of God, which is just an awesome, incredible thought. And we stand up because we just, we're just in awe of this. This is the word of God. And so we stand out of respect. Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. 
But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, my first question this morning is, who is sufficient for these things? Not just expounding on this passage, but who is sufficient to talk about loving you with all of our heart, soul, and mind? Who is sufficient to talk about the reality of loving our our neighbor as we love ourselves? It is not me. It is not us. But it is you. So we come to you in your sufficiency, your power, your grace, your love, your perfect patience, and we ask you to teach us, instruct us, tear us down, build us up, and send us out to be doers of this word by the power of your Holy Spirit. And God, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, Holy Spirit, convict them, draw them, breathe new life into them, that they might know salvation through the finished work of Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Man, it's good to see all kinds of people here this morning. It's nice. So, recap. Now, we've been working through the Gospel of Matthew for a long time now. I haven't looked to see when we started. It's probably been a couple years now. Um, I don't know that. But we're in chapter 22, um, which is, uh, there's 28 chapters in Matthew. So, we're in the last quarter or so. And we're in the last week of Jesus' life, right? And for the past few weeks, including this week, we're on Wednesday, I think, of the last week of Jesus' life. Um, So we find ourselves here where Jesus is in the temple speaking to the people in the last week of his life as he's preparing to go to the cross. And he's spending so much time here in the temple teaching and instructing. He's turned tables over. He's chased money changers and sellers of goods out. He's been confronted. And now here he is still on Wednesday. Uh, Again, we've been three or four messages on Wednesday. Uh, We find him Wednesday here. And, verse 34, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. So... If you'll remember the, the course of things, he had come riding on the back of a donkey to the cries of Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord on what we call Palm Sunday. Uh, he had uh, gone to the temple that day and just kind of walked in and walked out, left town, came back in, went to the temple. As he was leaving, he cursed a fig tree one night. And as they come in the next morning, they see that the fig tree was withered from root to tip. They're like, whoa, that's awesome. How'd you do that? And he said, if you got faith, you can do that and so much more went back into the temple, and he's been confronted now over a period of time um, by the Pharisees, the Herodians, the disciples of the Pharisees, and like we said last week, we saw the Sadducees, a bunch of E's, E's and A's. Now in today's passage, we see Jesus' old nemesis, the Pharisees, again. And we see that they had heard that Jesus had done what by his interaction with the Sadducees in last week's passage. It says that the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. And the literal wording here, the little rendering of that word silenced is muzzled. Uh, Don mentioned I was muzzled. Well, Jesus muzzled the Sadducees, okay? Uh, it means to render speechless by rendering something or someone. Uh, but speechless by muzzling something or someone. And it says that the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced or muzzled the Sadducees. Okay? So we said last week that the text that we looked at last week didn't show how the Sadducees reacted to what Jesus had said. But we see here that literally they had nothing to say. Jesus just, pardon if, this, if y'all don't say this word in your home, he shut them up. Okay? Shut up is not a nice word and you should not say it. But Jesus muzzled the Sadducees, and they were muzzled by Jesus schooling them on the resurrection, the Word of God, and the power of God. And it didn't take long for word to get out because what we see here is that the Pharisees must have been right there watching it happen because this happens directly after that. Okay, And so they're watching and they see 
the Sadducees eating this resurrection crow and not being able to say anything, and the Pharisees then move in, right? Because they just can't leave well enough alone. You would think that by now they would have learned their lesson and not tried to test Jesus. But they haven't, okay? So it says here they gathered together. So here they are. They're probably spread out kind of through the crowd. And then Jesus says what he says to the Sadducees, the Pharisees, hey, huddle up. And they, they nominate a guy. Okay, we're going to get to that one. Let me not get ahead of myself, okay? Okay, so they gather up. It says, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. They called their unholy huddle and came together. Okay, what are we going to do? Okay, they're strategizing. They're planning on how to proceed, how to approach Jesus again. And again, I'm just like, come on, guys. Have you not learned not to mess with this guy? From your interactions with him, the Herodians' interaction with him, your disciples' interaction with him, and now the Sadducees' interaction with him, you're going to try this again. And yes, indeed, they're going to try again. And one of them in particular is going to give it a try. Verse 35, And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. So these Pharisees are standing in a glob near Jesus, teaching in the temple, and they see and hear and muzzle the Sadducees. And one of them, one of the Pharisees, identified as a lawyer, it says, is going to ask him a question to test him. Now let me give you a little bit more information on that lawyer thing. So this guy was a Pharisee, so he was given, he had given his life to being separate by knowing, doing, and protecting the law of God as given in what we call the Old Testament and also in the books of Jewish rabbinic tradition and teaching. And this guy was also known as a lawyer, which means that what what has been referred to in the past as a scribe is very similar. And the scribes are the Pharisees who were legal experts, versed in the law of God to the point that that he would have written it out, he would have interpreted, he would have taught it, and was considered an authority on on the law of God. Now the fact that Matthew refers to him here as a lawyer and not the common word scribe may mean something. It may not, but I want to explore that for just a second. Because there is nowhere else in the Gospel of Matthew where Matthew calls somebody a lawyer. Okay, One time in Matthew, this word is used, lawyer. So this unique appellation, not, not appellation, appellation, which means a name given, sorry, may infer, no, nobody says appellation, right? Right. May it never be. Okay. So this unique name that Matthew gives this guy here as a lawyer and not calling him scribe, I think it does pique pique our interest. I think it should make us look and think. When you see a word that's used one time in in a gospel, in a book, in something, you just need to stop there a second and say, why? Why is this different? And we don't have an explanation of why it's different, so we can't put too much into this. But it's good at least to see this type of thing, to see that it's only used once. And I think the important thing here is that these Pharisees had been bludgeoned so badly by Jesus in the past, leaving His presence so many times with their tails tucked between their legs, seething with anger because He just handled them so thoroughly, that they just seem to be trying new tactics. And it makes me think that this guy is an ace. That, that he's kind of like, oh, we'll sick the lawyer on him. Anybody ever, I'll just get a lawyer is what I'll do. Why? Because lawyers are talkers. Lawyers will get you tripped up in your words. Trust me. Didn't you just say this? Well, I did, but that's not what I meant. You didn't mean that. What do you mean? Well, what I meant, what I meant to say was, but that isn't what you said. You said I know, well, wait, wait, wait. And they're like, I have no further questions. And you're like, but, 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 but. I just think this guy is unique. I think he's got something that the Pharisees are kind of banking on. And I just can't imagine that they're just going to watch the Sadducees get their clocks cleaned and then just entrust this exchange to some guy. That's my point here, okay? It's just unfathomable to me that they won't learn their lesson. The purpose of this guy, whether he's normal or an all-star or whatever, asking Jesus his question, it says, is in order to test him. This guy's going to test Jesus. Really? So... Anyway, this question is to try to trick or trap Jesus to get him in trouble, to trip him up in his words maybe, either with the crowd or with the religious authorities, or to have ammunition when they need it should they succeed in trying to get Jesus killed. And, and they will succeed in that, right? Just in a couple days from here. 
And don't forget, their goal is to kill Jesus. That's their goal. So what is this loaded question that this all-star lawyer guy is dropping on the creator of the universe? To trip him up. Verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Well, that might not seem like much of a question. But this is actually pretty pregnant with a lot of implications. First of all, the lawyer calls Jesus teacher, which is common among the Pharisees' interactions with Jesus. They keep calling him teacher or rabbi. That seems to be what they call him more often than not. Well, at least to his face. Who knows what they're calling him behind his back. And then this lawyer asks Jesus, which is the great commandment in the law? Well, again, we look at it and it looks a little bit innocent, but it's really a landmine. Okay, Because this was a common debate among the Jewish people. John MacArthur explains this. Quote, Now there had been a lot of discussion about this kind of stuff among themselves. I don't know if you remember your history of Jewish law, but they claim there are 613 separate laws because, now get this, there were 613 separate letters in the Ten Commandments. I don't know what connection that has, MacArthur says, but that's the way they did things. Some of the strange rabbinic letterism, as it used to be called. But they had one law for every letter in the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, and they divided that into two parts, that 613 law into two parts. They said there were 248 affirmative laws, one for every part of the human body. And MacArthur says, I don't understand why they did that either. And there were 365 negative laws, one for every day of the week or one for every day of the year. So they said one for every day of the year, one for every member of the human body adds up to 613. And then they divided the 613 laws into the light laws and the heavy laws. And the light laws were semi-optional and the heavy ones were binding. I mean, you can't keep 613. You got to have a break somewhere. So they lightened up on some and got heavy on some others, end of quote. So this was a big deal. 613 laws divided into light laws and heavy laws. And this Jewish lawyer walks up to Jesus and says, Which one is most important? Out of the 613, which one's most important? First note that they had a lot of discussion about this very question that this lawyer asked. That's what... MacArthur showed. They debated and had rabbinical teachings and traditions that would say one thing or another. And if you said there was, that this was the most important rule, then you would line up with one group while alienating yourself from all the others. So this question could be trying to pigeonhole Jesus into one particular group, therefore making the other groups mad. Also, in MacArthur's explanation, he noted that they were so specific and particular with the law down to the number of letters in it. So they could also be trying to get Jesus to say say something outside of the law as it is written very particularly. They've accused him over and over of violating their traditions and now they want to see if he'll say something outside of the law of God, extra to the law or maybe even contrary to the law. If you'll remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus had made statements in that sermon like, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. It's like he was superseding the law, which he wasn't. He was giving the original intent of the law, but they saw it as violating their tradition. So they they could have been trying to set him up to say something outside of the law of God so that they could call him a heretic because what he says is the most important thing isn't even in the law. And you know that they remember him saying these things. Like Jesus could know something about the law that they didn't. Give me a break. No-named rabbi from Nazareth, which is nowhere. So now they're trying to pin him down on the biggest of all deals. Let's strip away the minutiae and the fancy details. Let's see what you're really about, you deceiver of the people. What's most important? Which is the great commandment in the law? Ha! We'll get him now. We'll show everybody what he's really about, what he's really after. And so how does Jesus respond? Well, actually, very clearly in verse 37. And he said to him, Jesus said to the lawyer who asked him that question, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So Jesus does something here that he hasn't done up to this point. Not really. He directly answers their question. 
He doesn't ask them a question, which he's been prone to do when they've asked him a question. He doesn't tell a parable. He doesn't skewer them with their own words. Nothing like that. He just answers the question that was asked instantly. What is the first and great commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He just answers the question that was asked. And he, Jesus, said to him, the law, you're a Pharisee guy. So according to Jesus, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Well, Jesus says the greatest command is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, which uh, Luke read this morning. Let me read that for you. Hear, O Israel, I'm going to read it again. You heard it, but hear it again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is what the Jews call the Shema. And that word, that Shema comes from the word Shema, which is the Hebrew word here, which is the first word that that section begins with. And this Shema, this section, is very important to the Jews. It's the very center of what they are to believe, teach, and do in relation to the law of God. And they would literally do what God said to do there in Deuteronomy 6 with these words. They would bind them on their hands. They would take phylacteries and wrap them around their arms and down their hands. And what was written on these things wrapped around their arm and hands were these words. He talked about putting them as frontlets between your eyes. They wore this headpiece that had a little box right here that sat right here between their eyes. And inside that little box, they put these words written on a piece of paper. He said to put it on your doorpost. They would hang up what's called a mezuzah, which is a blessing box on the front part of their house at their door that had these words either inscribed in it or in a piece of paper inside of it. And and Orthodox Jews still do this stuff. And some non-Orthodox Jews still do some of it. If you travel internationally, you may see some Jewish people and and they put on their phylacteries and they put on their uh, frontlet here and they'll pray. And usually what they start with is these words here. It was and is that important to them. And that's what Jesus is quoting here. It would have been incredibly familiar to them and probably wouldn't have surprised anyone that this is what Jesus picks to say that is central in the law of God. And that answer is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And what a command it is. When asked what the most important commandment in all of the law is, Jesus says, you shall love. I don't miss that. The first and greatest command of God in all of His law, according to Jesus, is to love. And know that the word for love here in the Greek, in the New Testament, is is agapao, which is the love of will and action, and it's the kind of love that God shows us. It's not a feeling. It's not an arousal. It is a deep commitment to love and to serve somebody else. That's the word that we're looking at here. That's how we're commanded to love. And we'll talk more about that in application, but don't miss that point. And then he commands that we are to love who? The Lord our God. The one God. The God who is one. And we are to love Him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. Now we could break that down if we wanted to. And if you remember back in Romans, we talked about the conscience and the division of body, soul, and spirit and how the conscience resides in our souls, which is made up of our thoughts and our emotions, our minds and our hearts. So we won't dig into that today. We'll just drop that there. But what we will do is look at the command to love God with our heart and our soul and our mind and say that it is a calling for a total love, a complete love, a perfect love. It's a love with everything in us. All of our emotions, all of our mental engagement, everything within us, our first and greatest command is to love God with all of our being, everything, all the time. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Providence. 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now listen, this is a pretty big deal. And this first and greatest command will never change. It is and will always be the same. Now let me ask you, how are you doing in keeping that first and greatest commandment? I stink at it. I don't know that I've ever kept it. To love God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind. That's a big strike one right there. And it might be worth thinking about and talking about from time to time. But Jesus isn't done. Look in verse 38. This is the great and first commandment, he says. This is the great and first commandment. And again, Jesus is answering the question from the Pharisee lawyer about what he would say is the greatest commandment. Jesus didn't say that this is his take on things or that this is his opinion or this is what I think. He says this is the great and first commandment. So after answering their question, Jesus reinforces the fact that this is the great and first commandment. God in the flesh, God the Son confirms this is, without question, without doubt, the first and greatest commandment. And he's not done, verse 39. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now keep in mind, the lawyer asked Jesus, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus answered that question directly and clearly. But he felt the need to go on. You want one? You want the one greatest commandment? I'll give you that and I'll give you another. I see your request and raise you another. And the second, Jesus says, is like the first one. Bonus content. And see that Jesus connects this with the great commandment. And a second is like that great commandment. And what is the second commandment? You shall love your neighbors yourself. Now he's quoting there from Leviticus 19.18, which is a little bit weird. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, I would guess that the lawyer and the Pharisees weren't expecting this tack on to their question. The lawyer had asked for the great commandment, but Jesus wants to make a point. And when Jesus wants to make a point, he makes a point. A point that you can't love God and not love people. You can't. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, numbers 1 and 2, in order of the great commandments, revolve around love. You shall love God and you shall love your neighbor. Now, do we really, do you guys really, do I really fully understand what's going on here? Can we hear what Jesus is saying? And I mean, really... Because I'm not sure these Pharisees are hearing him. They're testing him, trying to trap him, and he's laying down a law of love. But not just love for God, as primary as that is. Because Jesus is saying to the self-righteous, lovers of themselves Pharisees, you want to know what's important? Loving God. And they say, yes, amen, you are correct. And loving your neighbor. Oh, well, um, 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 uh, you, back to the God thing. Let's, let, let's talk about loving God. Let's get back to the first command because that's what we do. Even though that's not really what they did, but that's what they would say that they did. So this is a really big moment as Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees who specialized in exalting themselves as the only true lovers of God while they looked down their self-righteous noses at everybody else. At every neighbor that they had. And Jesus defines who is our neighbor in in the uh, parable about the Good Samaritan. It's anybody that's in need. And we're to love that neighbor as we love ourselves. Which means we give up our stuff for them if it will help them. And the Pharisees, eh, that's not how they operated. They removed themselves from the muck and the mire and the sin and the sinners who committed those sins. And so Jesus brings that back full circle on them and says, You are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amen, pastor, teacher. And you're supposed to love your neighbor as you love yourself. 
And I would guess this was quite a shock and surprise to the previously nodding Pharisees. They went from amen to oh man. And their special agent lawyer who had asked the question. He got more than he bargained for. There is something about this lawyer, though, that's intriguing. I want to read quickly Mark's account of this passage. Watch this. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbors yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now watch this. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, Jesus said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now, while the Pharisees may not like it, Jesus and this lawyer have got something going. The lawyer goes, that's a good word there. And Jesus said, you're close. You're close. Now, he's already condemned the Pharisees to hell. Okay, he did that back in chapters 11 and 12, if I remember right. But he looks at this one guy and he makes a connection. He says, you're close. And I don't want to make too much of this, but Mark gives us a little snippet that shows that Jesus may actually have connected with this guy in spite of his Pharisaical Pharisaical mates. Jesus tells him he's not far from the kingdom of God. That's a little bit kinder than the condemnation that he's given the Pharisees in the past and the beating that he's about to give them in chapter 23. And it is a beating that he gives the Pharisees in chapter 23. This guy shows signs of getting it, that God has primary aim for his people to love God himself and to love others. And while we don't know this guy's fate, we do know that Jesus was pretty complimentary to him after giving this second leg to the great and first commandment, which is encouraging. Because if he can reach even a self-righteous Pharisee, he can reach me too. And then we finish our passage in verse 40. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus ends his answer to this lawyer by simply saying, back in Matthew, that on these two commandments, loving God and loving neighbor, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. These Pharisees had spent their whole lives poring over every single letter of the Old Testament, and Jesus is telling them that it all boils down to, it all hangs on, Loving God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and loving your neighbor as yourself. All of it. Love God with all of you and love your neighbor as yourself. All of it. All of it comes down to loving God and loving people. I'm pretty sure the Pharisees had missed that little detail, which is not so little, it turns out. Everything Jesus is saying... Everything in our Christian life revolves around loving God with all that we are and loving others in the same way that we love ourselves. And some of you are going, well, I don't really love myself. I bet you do. Let me come try to put my finger in your eye. You're going to protect yourself. You're wired to love yourself. Well, I don't. I'm just a bad person. That's Self-loathing is pride and arrogance as well, by the way. So, love God, love others. To be a Christian, this is the very starting block in doing the Christian life. I didn't say to becoming a Christian. That's tricky. We'll talk about that near the end. To follow Jesus as a disciple of Jesus Christ, a born-again follower of Jesus, this is the narrow gate that gets us onto the narrow path that leads to life. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments depend the entire Christian life. Everything else flows out of these two commandments. Now my question is, do we understand that? And if we do, are we living that way? Let me do this. 
mentally, I don't want to see your hands or I don't want you to hold up a sign. If you had to grade yourself this week on a scale of 1 to 10, how well you have loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and how well you've loved your neighbor as yourself, how would you grade yourself? I would be in the lower echelon of those 10 numbers. You're like, I knew it. You were just going to beat me up today. No, no. This is reality. We're not good at this. Christians, we are not good at this. So hopefully, you know better that I'm, than the fact that I'm going to tell you to try harder to do better. I hope you know me better than that. That I'm not going to stand up here, well, you better try harder to do better this week, and if you're a two this week, you better at least be a two and a half next week. It's not our goal. But our goal is application. So we're going to look at three H's. Heaven, human, which is kind of tricky. That does start with an H. And how. Heaven, human, how. How. How chemo sabi. How. So the first, heaven, human, how. First one is heaven. First, application point. The first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So how are we doing? Yeah, me too, neither. R.C. Sproul has said on many occasions, and I think he said it. No, it was was, was something different. He said on many occasions that he has not kept this commandment for five minutes in his life. And not that R.C. Sproul is the standard. But I think it's pretty safe to say that you haven't either. Neither have I. Can you point to any time in your life that you were loving God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all your mind? I would venture a guess that you have not. And I am certain that I have not. Oh, I've had fits and starts and spurts and some good stretches. But I've got a problem that's common to all of us. Every single one of us. And that is sin which dwells in my flesh. And here's the rub. Here's the deal. I hate that sin. And I love that sin. You're like, what? Pastor just said he loves sin. I do. I do. And if I say that I didn't, I wouldn't be honest with you. Why do I sin? Because I like it. And when I sin, I'm showing that I don't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I wish it wasn't there. And I'm glad it is sometimes, that sin. I'm just being honest with you. I hope you're being honest with yourself. If you want to sit and judge me, so be it. I'm judging you too. You're like, we shouldn't. Well, I am. This sin makes me sad and it brings me pleasure. And as long as I'm dealing with this sin issue, I will not love God with all of me. My sin in my body makes me want things that are sinful. And thus, they're not pleasing to God. Far too often, I want the things that draw my interest away from God. I get captivated by the world and its pleasures to a point that my focus is not on God, not on loving Him, much less doing so all the time with all of me. And the Bible warns us against these things over and over and over. James 4, 4 through 5, You adulterous people! Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? 1 John 2, 15-17 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now let me ask you a question. Those verses that I just read from James and 1 John, do they encourage you? They condemn the heck out of me. Because I just told you I like my sin. Sometimes. And if, 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 if I love the world, I don't love the Father. The love of the Father is not in me if I love the world. And this world's passing away. And all it has to offer me is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And sometimes I like it. So when I read those passages, I'm like, oh, gee. Who am I? What am I? I'm a monster. I'm supposed to, first and foremost... I'm supposed to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I'm not doing it. That lesson, the command, you are still supposed to do it. I'm still supposed to do it. And here lies, in my evaluation, the greatest thief of our love to God. We are friends with the world and the ways of the world. We love the world and the things of the world. And as such, we simply cannot love God the way that we should. We cannot love God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our minds because our hearts, souls, and minds are set on earthly things. We are saturated with the world. And we need to fix that. We're called out of the world to be separate and distinct And if we don't call ourselves out of the world, cause ourselves to walk away from the things of the world, we're never going to love the Father with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is our heavenward focus, which again, Luke read this morning in in Colossians 3. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are here on earth. What are our minds set on most of the time? It's things that are here on earth. Now we got a life to live. We got to live this life. We got priorities. We got jobs. We got things we've got to do. We got calendars and we got to do what we got to do. But so often we set our minds and our hearts and our loves on the things of the world. And what the scripture tells us is it's never going to satisfy you. It's going to frustrate you. It's going to make you feel good every now and then, just enough to draw you back, and it's going to leave you empty again. This world is a wonderful and terrible place. And we set our affections on the things of the world so that we can't set our affections on things in heaven where Christ is, where God is. So the application point here for heaven is just what Luke read, and I don't have it in here. Set your mind on things above. Set your heart on things above. Set your soul on things above. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. We'll get to that. That's our, actually our last application point. But heaven, set your mind on things in heaven where God is. That's the application point for heaven. Now human. We're commanded to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. <laughs> Tack on it, can't I just love God and like hole up in my house somewhere and read the Bible and give myself a high five because I read my Bible for 45 minutes today? I mean, that's loving God right there, brother. Three quarters of an hour. <laughs> Can I get an amen? Man, that's dedication. We're funny creatures. We really are. Yeah, I can listen to it for 45 minutes maybe. But here's the deal. We think, and we would be content with that, and we would say we're really showing that we love God by doing those things, and those things are good. Read your Bible. Meditate on the Bible. Memorize the Bible. Share the Bible. Evangelize. Pray. Do those things. Yes, yes, yes. But if it doesn't move you to love people, it's useless. What does it look like? Romans 13, 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is Paul writing in Romans 13. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. 
Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Let's balance it out with a little bit of James, right? (laughs) If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? How do we love our neighbor? We love our neighbor by giving them what they need, by helping them when they need help, feeding them when they're hungry, clothing them when they are cold, meeting needs of our neighbor. Who is our neighbor? Whoever is in need. And if I tell them, I'll pray for you, absolutely pray for them. Give them a coat. They're cold. Give them a bowl of soup. They're hungry. That's what loving your neighbor's all about. It's not about feeling a fond affection for them that stirs in your heart when you're in a secret place with God. That's not loving your neighbor. And again, as bad as I am at loving God with my whole heart, I think I'm even worse at this. So the application point for human is help people. Love people by helping them. Meeting the needs that they have. And then finally, the last application point is how. I don't know about you. But I don't feel like I even come close to measuring up in either of these commandments. And that leads me to despair. Am I even saved? This passage is hard to preach. Because I have to tell you that the greatest two commandments are to love God with your whole heart, with your whole soul, and with your whole mind, and also to love your neighbors yourself. To which you're going to say like me, I think, but I can't. I've tried over and over and over again, and I keep failing. So you leave here, if we're not careful, feeling beat up or feeling hopeless. But here's the deal, y'all. The gospel that we preach is a gospel of hope. And if you leave these doors feeling hopeless, I've done something wrong. Now let me tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to excuse your sin. Your sin is sin and it is a direct affront to a holy God. And it's not okay and it's leading you down a path, no matter how much you like it, of destruction. Personal destruction. Now if you're saved, the wrath of God has fallen on Jesus... So you don't have to worry about eternal destruction, but you do have to worry about consequences of sinful choices in the here and now. So how then? How do we process these two great commandments upon which the whole of the Christian life depends, knowing that we're not really good at it? Because look at this. Let's go back to 1 John for a second. You want to be discouraged? Let me read you some Bible. You're like, what? And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. You're like, oh crap. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we're in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. That's being Jesus, okay? He is Jesus. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true and in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light's already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. To which we've got to say, Amen. But doggone it. How's that make you feel? Everybody feel confident in their salvation now? Thank God that's not all that's written in the book of 1 John, by the way. We'll get to that in a second too. I don't think you're going to read just that passage and be encouraged and excited. Which I'm not here to get you whipped up in your emotions. That's not my goal. But I've read that passage before and just thought, maybe I'm not even saved. Because I walk in darkness sometimes. And he says, if I walk in darkness, I'm not in the light. So, how? How can we process all of this and not lose hope? I think it's in a surprising way. Watch this. 1 Timothy 1.5 The aim of our charge 
is love. Loving God, loving people. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now let me ask you this. Is your heart pure? Is your conscience clean? Is your faith sincere? Again, you're going, well, doggone it. I can't say because I don't love the Lord my God with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my mind. I don't. I don't love my neighbors myself. Now, I want to. So how can I progress in these things? Watch this. How can you love God more? How can you love God better? Watch this. 1 John 4.19, we love because He first loved us. You want to love God? Feast your eyes on the love of God for you. You want to love God more? Look at how much God loved you. Look at how much He loved you in sending His Son. Look at how much He loved you in adopting you into His family and calling you His very own and declaring over you, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I sin every day. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if God is for us, who can be against us? That makes me love God more. And when I love God more, I'm going to love you more. And I'm going to love my neighbor more because the love of God gets shed abroad in my heart. And it oozes out. It flows out. It overflows. Hopefully it doesn't ooze out. That's gross. Hopefully it rushes out like a mighty rushing river onto other people. This mighty, majestic love of God that was shown to us through the finished work of Christ. You want to love God more, know how much God has loved you. Not just with a well-intentioned, man, I really like those beings I made. But by doing something about it. Watch this. This sums it up. Loving God and loving people. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised, so we love God. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, praise God, He's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, hallelujah, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we, we, might become the righteousness of God. God reconciled us to Himself and said, go out and tell other people. Beg them, plead with them to be reconciled to me. Love me and love other people. Help other people to love me and to love other people. God has reconciled us to Himself, which motivates us to have others reconciled to God. Feast your eyes on the finished work of the cross in this verse here. And be amazed that God loves sinners to the point that while we were in our sin, Christ died for the ungodly. And if He did that while we were sinners, how much more will He do for us now that we are His? Now that we have become, we have become the righteousness of God. You don't deserve that. And God said, I'm going to lavish it on you. Think about that. You want to know how to love God and to love other people? Look at the cross. Look at the love of God displayed in the death of Christ for your sins. See the love of the one who knew no sin becoming sin on our behalf in order that we might become, get this, the righteousness of God. Focus on this truth, this historical fact, and let the Holy Spirit of God show you who you are, who God is, what Christ has done, and the enormity of the love poured out upon, in, and through you. 
And then that love leads you into action. Holy Spirit-enabled action that is called obedience. Perfect obedience, not until we see Him face to face, but obedience. The surest sign that you love God and that you love others is your obedience to God's commandments. The greatest and the least. Now watch this. We'll finish with this. First John. Praise God. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. This whole deal about keeping the commandments of God, you have a part to play. But the power comes from God Himself. And did you see this back here? I don't want you to miss this. We're almost done. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And He knows everything. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're feeling. He knows what you're doing, even in the secret place. And if God doesn't condemn us, who is there to condemn us? I want to read this hymn that we'll sing next week, Lord willing. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the Prince of Life, our ransom, shed for us His precious blood. Who His love will not remember, who can cease to sing His praise, He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide, through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. In thy truth thou dost direct me by thy spirit through thy word. And thy grace my need is meeting as I trust in thee, my Lord. Of thy fullness thou art pouring thy great love and power on me. Without measure, full and boundless, drawing out my heart to thee. I can't help it. I'm a sinner. Far too often I love the world and the things in the world. And God has set His perfect love on me and is in the process of conforming me to the very image of His Son. And when I am conformed to the very image of His Son, I will love Him perfectly. I will obey perfectly. And as I stumble and fall and jump headlong into the sin that I so dearly cling to, He knows. He knows that I don't love Him perfectly. He knows that I don't love my neighbor like I love myself. And He's not going to stop working. And He is the power that enables me to keep His commandments that He has given me for my good and for His glory. Here, O Israel... The Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. God, it's so easy to get frustrated and to beat ourselves up and to condemn ourselves and to listen to our hearts that condemn us, but we praise you, God, that you are greater than our hearts. Only because of the miracle power of the resurrection of Christ can we boldly approach you. Jesus, who is the Lamb, who was slain before the foundation of the world, who died once for all that our consciences might be cleansed. Help us, God, to set our minds and our hearts on the things above. 
Help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And God, as we fail, may we set our hope and our faith on the finished work of Christ to be our righteousness. May we never count on our ability to fulfill your law as our righteousness. It will never work. But... When we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter, of our fa- and perfecter of our faith, we know that he has not, cannot, and will not fail, even in and through us. God, help us to set our mind on things above. Help us to love other people by helping them when they need help. May we be doers of the word and not hearers only, and may you get glory in our lives because of it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, stand and receive a benediction. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. If you want to congregate, do so outside. I'm being told, hold on.